Greetings and salutations, Device Nation. You're home for the greatest show on earth, and we know that show is Medical Device Sales with ideas, stories, and interviews to help take you from good to great. I hope you're having a great day. I hope you had a great week. I know I did. This is Kevin Brown, your voice of Music City and Times of Portland, Oregon. We are doing something super exciting today. As you could tell by the intro music, we're putting our country on. I want you to jump on the tour bus with me because we are heading to Nashville, Tennessee. So jump on the bus with me. Let's hit the road. Today's conversation is going to be with the most famous singer you've probably never heard of. His name is Wes Hightower. He's been singing background vocals on records and demos in Nashville since 1993. He's sung on several hundred million records and downloads, 151 number one country singles. And the people that he sung behind is a who's who. Jason Aldean, George Strait, Reba McIntyre, Carrie Underwood, Blake Shelton, Florida, Georgia Line, Toby Keith, Brad Paisley. Can I go on? I won't. You get the picture. He is an amazing cat. And we're going to learn something really interesting today because you're probably thinking, what in the world does this have to do with medical device? Well, put down your Striker System 7. And we're going to grab a Rode Classic microphone, and we're going to find out what these two have to do with each other, because I promise you, you're going to walk away from this today and go, I get it. These two jobs are inextricably linked. So welcome to the show, Mr. Wes Hightower. Thanks for having me. Mr. Hightower, thank you so much for joining us in the OR here at Device Nation. Uh, Don't touch anything blue. I have been so inspired by the work you've done on so many hit songs out of Nashville, and I can't wait to ask you about your work with Toby Keith, Florida, Georgia Line, Josh Turner. We could go on and on with that. And working, to quote an amazing movie, 20 Feet from Stardom. But first, let's go back to North Texas State. What put you on the road that would ultimately lead to your voice on 150 number one hits? North Texas State. Of course, it's a university in North Texas now, but when I was there, it was North Texas State was uh, my just half-assed attempt at higher education. While I was there, took some computer science classes when I was there. I took some accounting classes. I took an engineering class, a surveying class. And I was kind of just reaching desperately for uh, something to tweak my interest. And I wasn't having very good luck with that. Fortunately, there were some bars there in town where I could uh, drink. (laughs) <laughs> and in the process of uh, going out at night, I got to listen to a blues band. I really wish I could remember the name of that band now. I remember George was the, the guitar player. They had a sax player, a lead singer who could do James Brown. Not as good as James Brown, but really good. And so I started following that band when they would play that little bar called The Enterprise on Elm Street. I would go listen to them. Got to become friends with the guys and uh, actually stood up and sang a few times with them. Just blues songs, old school stuff. I knew a lot of it because I was a blues fan. And unfortunately, my college experience, that was the only thing that tweaked my interest. And from there, uh, I actually took over lead vocalist for that band for six or seven months. The lead singer moved. And they were without their James Brown prodigy. So skinny little white dude comes in and takes over. And I learned a lot about how inept I was at dancing like James Brown. And I learned a lot about uh, what it takes to sound like you've got an old soul. And I learned a lot about phrasing and what it means uh, when you're trying to get a message across. And that was the beginning of uh, my journey musically. I had a boss at the time. I was tinting windows on cars. He said, he said, Wes, I don't know where you're headed. He goes, but it seems to me like you should be uh, doing something musical. He was right. I didn't really act on it until the late 80s, uh, 1989, actually. I had met a friend who had decided to move to Nashville. 
he heard me sing and said, you know, he said, uh, I've heard you sing, particularly I've heard you sing background vocals because I did a recording with them, which I sang the lead and the backgrounds. And the backgrounds went much quicker than the lead did. He said, I really think you got something. I'm moving to Nashville this fall. You should come visit. I'll introduce you to some of my friends. So I took him up on it. October, I think, of 89 is when I got to town. Just got a regular job at a mall. Started hanging out in studios. Did a few things for free. Had really no idea what I was doing from a recording standpoint. I just stood there and did what I heard in my head. And it was not pro at first, but fortunately I had some patient songwriters and producers work with me and tell me where I needed to go in certain places. And I really learned from uh, songwriters, some engineers that had production experience, how to how to make backgrounds work such that you make the lead singer sound better, but you also make the mix engineer want to turn you up. Over the next five years, I got better and better at it. And then finally sang on my first, what I would call master recording, was a Holly Dunn record in probably 1994, maybe late 93. Songwriter friend of mine, his name was Chris Waters. So he was the first guy to hire me to sing on something that was going to be commercially released. From there, the engineer on that session got me back for another record. The guy's name was David Kirsch. I don't know if he had a number one. He may have had a number one, but I didn't sing background vocals on it. So he had a blossoming career. And I got to sing background vocals on that and work with a guy named Curtis Young, who's, you know, everybody knows him as Mr. Harmony. He was the guy that was working on all the records back in the 80s and 90s, and actually late 70s as well. He was a harmony singer that was on all the early George Strait recordings. He took me under his wing and actually taught me a lot about the process. Also taught me about how it needs to happen fast. And that was kind of what separated the guys who never really make a career out of it and the guys who do were the guys who make it go away the quickest. I learned over the years that producers in Nashville, they, they start a project on an artist and they spend, they can spend months just gathering material to, to record on an artist. And if they're lucky enough to find an album's worth of material to cut on that artist, then they start recording it. They do overdubs on it, guitar solos, steel, fiddle, overdubs. And by the time the artist sings their vocals it's entirely possible that uh, this producer could have been buried in this project for four to five months listening to the same 10 or 11 songs over and over again eight hours a day getting uh, burned out on the whole process one thing i'll say is the the mark of a great producer is a guy who's built for that kind of thing you live with something for a long time you don't let it get under your skin but background vocals being the last thing to go on a record normally before it's mixed and put out there is a certain level of frustration and anxiety around that day when you start doing background vocals everybody's uh, seeing the end of the tunnel they're ready to make it uh, end and i learned how to make it go away really quick and get what they wanted to hear and then not have to do lots of uh, punches and overdubs and resings to make it sound great by virtue of that from 97 to, well, I just actually recently got my 151st number one with a Morgan Wallen song that went number one. So I went from one, my first number one was in 1997, 2020 for the last number one. So, uh, you know, what's that? 23 years, 151 number ones. It was once the business figured out I could do it, they were more than happy to let me as often as I wanted to, seven days a week, <laughs> 350 days a year. And that's where it went. I did not go to Nashville thinking it would get that good. But because as a window tenter, the max amount of money you can make is pretty well defined. I thought it wouldn't certainly couldn't hurt to go try because I could have tinted windows anywhere. That's why I feel like talking to somebody like yourself you know, I actually work with a lot of people who were uh, medical reps for drug companies, things like that, who are just making ends meet while they try to get a leg up in the business. Window tinting was that 
for me for the first three or four years. I was able to work during the day and then hang out at night. It worked wonderfully for me. Uh, the gift is from God. I was always a singer in church as a kid, but never had any inkling that it could be a professional pursuit until probably, you know, 1990. After I got to town and realized that, you know, this town is full of regular human beings that uh, have a gift and uh, aren't afraid to let people hear it. So that's that's how it happened for me. I had a friend of mine who was one of the best guitar players I've ever heard in my life. And he uh, he was gone one day and I said, what happened to him? And they said, well, he went to Nashville to seek his fortune. And he was back about a year later and he said something kind of profound. He said, I realized when I got there. There was a couple thousand people already there that play as good or better than me. So that town is full of such talented people. The people that finally break through on the other side is the exception, not the rule, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, I trust because the music business is structured so differently from every other business, at least at the non-corporate level. I call it the trenches, you know, the, the recording end of the business. There is no resume. There is no HR department. There is no hiring process. A, a producer or a production assistant has your number, believes you're the right person for the job, and calls you. And the more they trust you, the more their friends trust you, and so on and so on. And, and it does take a while to get to the point at which you know those people who have your number and trust you to do the job quickly. But my, you know, if there is an advantage for someone like me or someone going now to sing background vocals, there aren't a lot of people that go there to be background vocalists. Singers with a gift typically want to be artists, not background singers. So they go to Nashville and they try to get a record deal and they try to make a record and they try to become famous. And that's not the path I took. <clears throat> I never really felt like... A, I wasn't pretty enough, and uh, B, I wasn't really sure I wanted the responsibility of becoming a famous artist. That wasn't something, early on, I pretty much knew that wasn't my focus. I saw my friends who I met who were making good living just getting up in the morning and going to record. They would record, you know, six to nine hours a day, go home to their families, make a good living, and that was plenty enough for me. And that's why I'm probably the only background singer you'll interview that uh, went there to do that, as opposed to wound up a background singer as a bail position from having not made it as an artist. Was there one particular song, going back to the beginning, that that really kind of puts your career on the, the trajectory that it's gotten on, that, that kind of puts you in the mind of these production people that said, this is the guy you need to call? Well, I mean, I can't say this for certain. I know that the first time you would have heard and been able to make out, it was me, if you knew who I was. On the radio was uh, my very first number one. It was a Colin Ray single called I Can Still Feel You. I was asked to sing rock and roll high parts in that song. And fortunately for me, you know, the, the high notes never never were a struggle for me. So it was an easy day for me to sing those high parts. We got it done quickly. It was a huge number one, Colin. And because, like I said a while ago, what got to tape that day was something that inspired the mix engineer to turn it up. So you can hear the high parts and the harmonies very, very well in that song. So it rang whether or not it made a difference to the the public, the guys that were Colin Ray fans who loved his music, I would never I would never say that. But to the industry, because it was a huge number one hit, the industry found something in that that it liked, thought perhaps it did resonate with the audience, and they began uh, creating more opportunities for guys like me to sing high. And uh, although it was very country, it was still recorded more like rock where high vocals, you know, they weren't steering away from high vocals. They were going toward them. From that moment on, the lion's share of the time, if I'm working with another singer, I'm singing the high part from, from every song like that one all the way up to Troubadour for George Strait. Uh, Vince Gill's got the low part. 
on that song. I'm the high guy. I believe in my mind that's what did it. Uh, the, the industry recognized high vocals have a certain energy to them, and it was an energy that worked for that artist, and they thought it would work for other artists. You know, the, the industry is always trying to find common denominators such that they can put lots of music out that people like for whatever reason. And that was something they had not gravitated to in the past. They thought it would be a fresh idea. And I think you'd notice after 1997 that a lot more high vocals got heard on records. I really enjoyed, and I'm going to put a link to it in the show, watching you in the studio on a couple David Bradley tunes. And I loved watching the back and forth between you and the mix engineer as y'all walk through uh, punching some lines in there. I know you do a lot of your work remotely, but in uh, those sessions where you are in the studio with the engineer, is there a lot of that back and forth uh, about uh, working through the phrases uh, collaboratively? Oh, yeah. It makes engineers, I mean, recording engineers, and, you know, if this is how I, I hope. I hope to work with a recording engineer, producer, and an artist. An artist can't always be there because, like I say, by the time it gets to me, those artists are already out touring long removed from the recordings but it's typically a mix engineer a producer and myself and the banter is part of the fun because we all get to create and uh, my job is to uh, make sure their vision is met and in every case possible also make sure my vision is met as well if i have an idea i'm not afraid to tell them they trust me not to waste their time and then they can decide after I've sung whatever part it is or whatever grouping of parts it is, whether they want to use them or not, but I haven't wasted anyone's time. Tell me about voicing. Uh, That's a fascinating subject to me. Are you going to use the same voice on a Carrie Underwood song as you would uh, singing behind Toby Keith, for example? No. uh, What I was telling you, the whole God-given gift thing. When I first started, I didn't know that I was singing differently for lots of different vocalists. I didn't know that I was picking up on certain passing tones and and frequencies in their voice and mimicking them when I sang. I didn't, again, in the beginning, I didn't even realize that until some engineers complimented me on my ability to sound kind of like the artist, which was easier for them to blend in. You stand out too much, a mix engineer is not going to want you competing with the lead vocalist. But if you sound like the lead vocalist, they're not, uh, they're not competing tones. So mix engineers will turn that up because they can get the benefit of the harmony notes without the, the degradation of the, the, the meaning and the emotion behind the lead vocalist. So I didn't really know I had that ability for the first couple of years. Until enough people had told me I was doing it inadvertently that I realized what was going on. And once I realized that, then, yeah, there, there, are, there are ways that I find what I call sympathetic tones in my voice that actually blend really well with other lead vocalists. Toby Keith is a very strong, powerful, guttural voice. So it's much easier for me to open up and sing a little harder or stronger because I'm not going to cover him up. But if I sang with him, like I sang on, say, that David Kirsch, I I can't remember the name of the song, but it was a very ballad-type song. Not a lot of, there was no yelling in that song. It was all very tender singing. And that song, I had a very tender voice behind it. I didn't do that on purpose at the time, but once I realized I could, if it's a ballad, you know, I can I can just come short of crying when I sing with the singer and it adds to the emotion and I think it helps get the message of the song across better. To answer the question, no, I didn't know at first I could do it, but once I figured out I could do it, then that's part of the that's part of my thing. And I'm I'm not the only one with that gift. There are other background singers in Nashville that can do exactly the same thing. So I'm not unique. 
It's just I'm one of few. I found my love for background vocals initially through uh, Mutt Lang's work oh, yeah. with Def Leppard. This is just kind of a, I guess I'm asking for some inside baseball stuff here. How does that kind of backing vocal landscape get constructed? Rock is obviously a completely, it's a bigger box. So Mutt was able to work within a box three times the size of what I was working with at the time. Now, here's what I believe, although I don't believe I'll be relevant when it happens, I believe country music is progressing to that point as we speak, and we'll get there. But the Def Leppard stuff, which is a great example of huge harmony vocals, answer parts, counter melodies, uh, but they're multiple stacks of the same track with different vocal tones on each track. You know, say, say for instance, you know, oh, say, can you see? Oh, say, can you see? There's nine ways to sing it, if not 90, and each track when Mutt does those overdubs, has a slightly different tonal quality to it. So he can do six or eight passes of a part and make it sound like 24 because of the way he pans uh, the vocals and how he EQs the vocals after he gets them done. And then there's the mix engineer. And I've got to tell you, I I feel so sorry for the mix engineers that worked with Mutt because (laughs) I know how much of a stickler he is for not just phrasing, but EQ, and for those background vocals, and I'm, I know he's not the only background vocalist that worked on the, some of those records, but for the guys that did work for him, they had hard days ahead of them because when uh, when he digs in, uh, he wants something, and uh, a slight miss is not good enough. So with all of those factors going into the background vocals, he was brilliant in that not only could he make his vision happen, with the right phrasing and with the right tones. But he was filling space that, uh, outside of perhaps Queen records that preceded it, that really had never been filled before in rock and roll, just vocals. Uh, And he was doing it himself. You know, I understand, uh, speaking of Queen, I understand Bohemian Rhapsody took like three weeks to record, and most of that was vocals. So, you know, I'm not saying Mutt took that long, but it would not surprise me if that kind of time didn't go into those records, primarily because, A, they had the budget. They could afford to pay that engineer in that studio an extra four days to finish one song, which doesn't exist in country. So, you know, most country records now are made for between eighty dollars and $120,000. When I got into the business, they were made for between two hundred fifty and 400000 So that's how much the budgets have dropped since I started doing that. Hence the pressure to get it done fast. Yes, the guy that makes it go away the quickest wins. And fortunately, you can, you know, uh, my voice is as high as many of the female singers in town. So those guys will go, well, let's just hire Wes because he can cover this high stuff we wanted in the chorus. And that way we don't have to hire two people and it costs us half the money. And that's just the reality of it. That says nothing about my vocals. It says something about what, what I'm able to do with the gift I have versus what they're able to pay for wanting what they want. You're a BOGO. (laughs) 2003, I heard this amazing song by Josh Turner. It was the beginning of kind of my country phase. Uh, And I was listening to Long Black Train, and I was listening to it on a good stereo. And it, it took a few listens to kind of zero on the fact there was this subtle harmony following a lot of the melody. And I was like, wow, this is so amazing of how it changes the whole texture and the the feel when you came in on that and that's when i discovered west hightower and i was just kind of hooked from then on that's actually me and another singer so the lower of the two voices that you hear is actually russell terrell okay uh, that's that's two of us on that recording again that was back when our records had some budgets but that's two of us and i sang the high parts on that and we had a a blast creating those pedal tones and uh, just making that thing shine. I mean, it was great before we got there, but we knew everybody in the room uh, knew it was a hit when we were done. I love the train horn that y'all did. Is that something y'all came out with yourself, or did the producer kind of lock that in? What happened there? Now, Russell and I came up with that idea. It was a perfect spot for it. There, there was a space there that needed to be filled. That was our idea. That's just genius. I was listening to another Josh Turner song the other day, Time is Love, and just the way you came in on that harmony when uh, during the bridge, uh, when he's voicing the word fly, it was just magical what that, that upper layer adds to a note. Just incredible. There's no doubt 
uh, harmony vocals are an integral part of 98% of the top 40 for the last 50 years. There are those songs that don't need them. They speak all the message they need to speak without them. And when you hear one of those songs, and I've actually, you know, I've heard those songs in, in studios that I was asked to sing background vocals on, and I, I begged them to not let me mess it up. We left it alone, and it was great. But I do believe that the lion's share of all the music that you'll hear that you really, really love has background vocals on it. And you, you, you know, even whether you're a trained ear or not, I think you likely are going to notice background vocals uh, make it better. Tell me about all the songs that you've been exposed to over your career. Is there a couple that you could point out was like, that is just amazing a piece of work right there that was really inspirational to you. That would be a hard list, but I'll, I'll just go straight to the top. Uh, the most poignant, heartfelt message that affected me personally was Three Wooden Crosses on Randy Travis. Now, I actually got to sing on the demo of that song, and I had to take a break. I, I, just, I was just bawling. I couldn't sing. Couldn't uh, emote couldn't do my job because the song reached me so deeply. I just was overcome with emotion. When I got to the, by the time the record came around and it wasn't long after, it probably wasn't 60 days before I was cutting it on Randy Travis. Uh, by then I had lived with that song in my head for 60 days and those, and I did all the parts on that song. Those parts were as, as an emotional and as well thought out a plan as I could ever have come up with on my own. That was an amazing song. I think the other song that really moved me at a deep level, just like what you described, was uh, Go Rest High on That Mountain. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, when I saw Vince Gill perform that, I, I barely kept it together. I honestly don't know how he gets through it. He wrote that song about his brother, and uh, I, I don't know how he gets through it. But I'm glad he does because, you know, that song deserves to be heard forever. You know, a song I've been listening to lately, like, yeah, I'm a Josh Turner fan, uh, that I think is just one of the most underrated songs ever. It was actually two of his, the Loretta Lynn's Lincoln, which is absolutely hilarious. Huh, yeah. And, uh, and uh, I had one one time. That, that is just a beautiful song. I've listened to it maybe 50 times. Um, it, it emotes so well. Uh, and I'm not a huge lyric guy, but uh, that, that song is so powerful. One of those amazing songs most people have never heard. I feel like everybody in the process had a lot of fun cutting that. And I know Josh had a lot of fun singing it. So I think, uh, I think what you're getting to hear on that recording, and I, and I swear by this, I swear a good vibe in a room comes across in the recording. I think that song created a vibe in the room in which everybody was having fun. Everybody was doing what they felt like was fun. And because they're great musicians, when a great musician is in his element having fun, not worried about the time, not worried about anything else except having fun and recording music, that's what comes across in songs like that. It's just fun. And Lord, we had a blast singing on it. I still remember that line like it was yesterday. It was just so funny and so poignant. Like any would-be country music singing sensation, I had no visible means of transportation. <laughs> yeah, right. That's just a great line. <laughs> Boy, yeah, he had no idea how poignant that line is. <laughs> Let's talk about George Strait for a minute. You toured with him for, I believe, 13 years. How did how did you end up? Uh, behind the microphone with this group. I have a very good friend, also a prolific background singer who also had a record deal back in the late 60s, early 70s. His name is John Wesley Riles. Uh, his hit, well, actually he had two hits on radio, but the, the hit that really made him famous, particularly in the industry, uh, was a Glenn Campbell reject called K. Uh, if you ever get a chance to hear John Wesley Riles perform the song K, K-A-Y-E. Listen to it. Dig on it. It'll blow your mind. 
It was written specifically for Glenn Campbell. Glenn passed on it because John Wesley had sung the demo. Uh, the record label said, well, let's just put that out. And as it turns out, he got a record deal, and uh, K was his first single. Actually, I won't say it was his first single, but it was a single on him. John Wesley had gotten the gig uh, to go out on tour with George. Curtis Young was the guy who had been doing background vocals on the records for years. He was asked to do the tour. George wanted to step up the stage presence. He was starting to do stadiums and wanted more vocal context uh, and, and the big sound. It was already a big band, but it wasn't big on vocals, and so they wanted to make it bigger on vocals. Well, Curtis had just had back surgery. Uh, he was, uh, I think they said he was 16 weeks before he could actually walk on his own. The tour was going to start before he was ready to travel, and he didn't want to try sleeping on a bus bunk. Uh, to do that even after he was healed. So he respectfully said, I can't do it. Call John Wesley. And John Wesley took the gig. I had uh, done a lot of singing with John Wesley. And uh, we had lunch one day and I said, John, that's just the coolest thing ever, man. So just know that if you ever need a sub, uh, you don't have to look any farther because I already know every note of every song. You're covered. I don't even have to rehearse. Just call me. I'll come cover the parts. You've got a sub for this gig. He thanked me, and two weeks later, he called me back, and it was just the most heartbreaking thing. Uh, his mom uh, had gone into, uh, you know, at the time, I guess, they, I don't know if they started calling it hospice by then, but uh, she was very, very sick. And he was virtually certain she wasn't going to make it very long and he did not want to be out on the road when it happened because he would have a lot of thing, family things to deal with. And, uh, he called me, we had lunch one day and he said, Wes, I've decided not to do this. Do you want the gig? And it just broke my heart. Uh, but I mean, there was no question. I, I said, are you positive? This is what you want to do. Yes, I said, I, there's no way I'd say no. No way. I'm in. So from 99 to 2006, is that nine to eight years, I, I did the gig and had an absolute blast and then uh, left for seven or eight years uh, and then came back. And so I'm back on tour with them now. Well, obviously, we're not touring now. May not tour for a while, but it is it is George's wish to go back to work as soon as it's safe. I worked with a sax player uh, many years ago who prepped for every show, eating bananas of all things. It was his go-to. I'm more of a Honey Nut Cheerios guy before I do a podcast. I was just curious, what's your uh, what's your go-to prep? Well, it depends on what era. Uh, the early days, my go-to was six shots of tequila before we walked on stage. And uh, if I if my solo <laughs> cup was full of tequila, and if I finished that solo cup long about the time we started the encore, that was my prep. Uh, there were times when I tried to drink enough to forget the words, and it wasn't going to happen, so I gave up. But nowadays, uh, I do. I have a couple shots of tequila before I go out on stage. I don't drink any water within about an hour and a half. I hydrate real heavily the afternoon of. And after about, if we go on at 9, which is most of the time we go on at 9 in Vegas. So long about 6.45, I don't take in any more water. We don't get pee breaks on stage. That's the biggest reason why. And I found that uh, copious amounts of tequila do not make me have to go pee, and so that's my uh, that's my go-to. Although uh, my liver doesn't process it near like it used to, so I don't drink near as much as I used to. Do you still do the Lay's potato chip? I read about that the other day. If I'm having if I'm having trouble with l lubrication, 
it's usually three or four of those potato chips does the trick. It's artificial, but it works wonders. And that actually, I got that from Amy Grant. She was the she was the one that turned me on to that wonderful tidbit of information. I actually shared it with George, and for a couple of years, George would have potato chips on his bus before every show, especially when we would do out west because he uh, uh, he struggles with the dry air going from you know South Texas where it's very humid out to Vegas or California, low humidity places. He does struggle for a day or two, uh, and Lay's potato chips worked well for him. It got him. It got him through some shows he might not have been able to get through. I'll tell you that. I was reading an article the other day about Bobby Kimball from uh, Toto, and uh, the oh. landscape of music is littered with singers who've tanked their voices for uh, various issues. Any uh, any secrets out there for? longevity with your instrument, so to speak. Oh boy. I'm probably the worst example of actual active pursuit of longevity for my voice. You know, I, you know, I'll smoke a cigar. Yeah. I would drink a glass of juice or milk and not even think twice about it affecting my voice in the studio. I'll drink coffee while I'm singing a lot in the studio, not on stage, but in the studio. And the crazy thing is, you know, for, I would say of the 25 years I was working 40 plus hours a week, uh, 15 of those years, I was working 50 to 60 hours a week. And that's on mic singing. There were days when I had done 17 songs over the course of about 12 or 13 hours and could not talk we couldn't have a conversation if i tried but if you pulled up another song i could sing and be fine uh there's there's something again it's a gift but there is something unusual about my voice that it it holds up for a long time and it holds up for a long time singing high because that's kind of that's kind of the reason people hire me so I don't I don't know how to tell somebody to protect their voice, but I can tell you that there are indicators that you're doing it wrong. And that's usually by, you know, just a slight little reflex in the vocal cords it creates a, a glitch in the higher notes or mid-level notes, which probably tells me you're pushing too hard. It could be a breathing issue. Uh, support is very important. Uh, and I think if somebody's struggling in that, I think really they can just go spend an hour or two with a vocal coach to help them uh, find better support for that area. There was a time when I was having trouble in a certain range. My my voice was not transitioning well between notes, uh, you know, C2 to, you know, A above it. I went and saw a vocal coach. And he just reminded me that I wasn't breathing correctly. I wasn't breathing in the right places. Therefore, I wasn't getting enough support when I was having to sing those, those, those transitions through, through those transitions. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it was an hour and I was cured. Just a boneheaded omission I'd been making and in my preparation for moving between notes, I just forgot. And I needed somebody to remind me. And once they reminded me, it was uh, smooth sailing from there. So tell me, I'm not going to put you on the spot because I know you have to work with a lot of different artists uh, in, in the Nashville sphere. Outside of Nashville, non-country, who's your favorite artist? Outside of Nashville, non-country. Wow. Uh, current or ever? Ever, yeah. Oh. Jeez. The the list goes on and on. I mean, I grew up listening to uh, Who, Led Zeppelin, ELO, Queen, uh, Boston. Love Boston. Uh, gosh, Billy, Billy Joel, Elton John. The Songs in the Key of Life is probably one of the best records ever made. I, it was pretty eclectic, but, you know, w- with the exception of the the Nashville 
LPs laying around the house that my parents had bought that I listened to and loved. Uh, the stuff that I bought was rock. I, I bought all rock, although one songwriter record I bought was Mac Davis, uh, which I, I don't know. For whatever reason, as a 10-year-old, I loved Mac Davis. I don't understand, but it resonated with me uh, really well. And he's not necessarily a Nashville guy, although he's been a Nashville guy forever. He just recently passed, but he's a Muscle Shoals cat. Oh, gosh. What was that song that he wrote that uh, was like his big hit? Uh, well, I mean, there's In the Ghetto, which uh, Elvis recorded. And actually, he got another... Really huge Elvis cut, and I'm sorry I'm drawing blank right now. But the, that's right. The, it was the an Elvis funny, tune. The funny one that uh, he wrote was "Oh Lord, won't you?" No, uh, sorry, "Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble." That's it. That's He's the song. In every way. That's yeah. right. <laughs> Just fun. Uh, oh, it was awesome so fun. Song. It was Written so fun. Tongue in cheek, and everybody loved to sing it. Exactly. Uh, it, was a, it was a barroom favorite for years. Yeah. Any advice you have, say to my friend who went to Nashville, anybody going to Nashville to try to seek their fortune, uh, any any advice you would give them on how to break in or at least get noticed? For, uh, for someone wanting to be an artist, uh, I, I would say, I will pray for you. Uh, <laughs> for somebody wanting to dig into the trenches, I would say, uh, do something to pay the bills and make the commitment uh, to go out when you're not having to work and network and meet people, particularly songwriters. Uh, you know, songwriters are the hardest working, most frustrated, up and down, emotionally wrecked individuals in the music business. Because everything they write, they pour their heart and soul into, and the the upper echelon of them, the ones that have the toolbox to create a great song, pretty much every time, if you give them an idea, it's going to be a hit song. No matter how good it is, sometimes it gets passed over. They understand the frustrations. They understand the highs and lows. And they understand, uh, ultimately, the difference between the songs that get cut and the songs that don't. And because they know so much about what's working and they have their hand on the pulse of where the music is going at the time, they're capable of writing songs that are projected out nine to 12 months. Where's the, where, where's it going to hit nine to 12 months from now? This artist did this one thing that everybody seems to be gravitating to. So let's write something that can hit radio nine to 12 months down the road and build on that. And their perspective, I believe, is the most important perspective for an artist, for a musician, or a songwriter going to town. I mean, even if you're going to just study publishing or study how record labels work and you want to work in the industry side as opposed to the musical side, if you meet and get to know songwriters and understand what they understand about the business you are ahead, uh, hands down. If anybody going to Nashville, I'll tell them it's going to be harder now than ever, especially to do it the way I did. Because again, there were no resumes. It was literally a matter of being in the right place at the right time, having a guy show you the ropes. And I, you know, I didn't mention Byron Gallimore, who produced Messina, Toby, uh, Tim McGraw, Faith Hill. Uh, so many huge, huge hit records. He was another guy willing to sit down with me late nights, starting the starting to see some demos at midnight and getting done at about four o'clock, knowing I had to be at work at seven. But he would sit there with me and he would help me. He was a publisher. He was a songwriter who had had cuts on Charlie Pride, uh, and uh, he was a producer. He produced lots of the demos for his songwriting staff at Pride Music, which is Charlie Pride's publishing company. Uh, that guy's perspective, uh, you get to know Byron Gallimore, you're not going to get a better perspective for the whole picture uh, than you will from that guy. Uh, 
So that would be my advice. Go there and find songwriters. If you can get in touch with these producers without, you know, throwing them off. There's a little, there is a little bit of a guard up there with the producers. Songwriters typically, their guard is down all the time. You'll find them out at writer's nights and uh, small venues, listening to live music, just soaking in what they hear, trying to come up with the next idea. So I would tell them to do that. And if you actually have a gift for it, you'll find a path through that. I'm not saying it's the fastest one, but it's the one I know works. Uh, and from that point forward, it's just a matter of time and a, a matter of will and persistence and commitment. That's great stuff. Mr. Hightower, how can people connect with you on social media and just kind of keep up with, uh, with what you got going on? I don't, uh, I don't do a lot of social media, but, uh, I always answer emails through the website, westhightower.com. Uh, I have a Twitter account. I don't post a lot on it, but it can be reached through Twitter. Uh, at, at Westerhead, W-E-S-T-E-R-H-E-A-D. And I'm on Facebook, uh, West High Tower in Florida. Although there may be 20 West High Towers in Florida. There are a lot of West High Towers in Atlanta, Georgia. I know that. My wife's not too crazy about social media. She says it's a plant that you just have to keep watering. <laughs> yeah, I have definitely felt that. And unfortunately, that plant uh, these days will grab you around the neck and choke you. <laughs> Little shop of horrors. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it is. Feed me, Seymour. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, you've been such an inspiration to me, and I appreciate your work over the years and your contribution. And I, I really appreciate you coming on the show just to share your life with uh, with me and my audience. Keep up the great work. I know there's uh, there's even greater things coming ahead for you. Well, I sure hope so, and uh, I'm still willing to do the work. So I look forward to what comes down the pipe next. I remember it like it was yesterday. A classmate of mine said, you've got to come over to my house after school today, and you have to hear this. I said, okay. Don't know what it is that I need to hear, but I'm coming over. I watched as he peeled the plastic off an album that would kind of change my life musically. We sat there in beanbag chairs and listened to both sides of this album. And we're just blown away by it. Never heard anything like this before in our lives. And what was it? It was the first Van Halen album. Now, for those of you in the audience that don't know what a record is, just imagine a really big CD. So after that day, I was hooked. I was an Eddie Van Halen fan, followed his every move for many, many years. And I'll never forget an interview he was involved in. And he said, David Lee Roth, the singer of Van Halen, had LSD. And not what you're thinking. LSD in this context stood for lead singer disease. So you're thinking to yourself, okay, Kevin, I've been patient. I've listened to this interview. I'm not really into country music. You're talking Eddie Van Halen now. I'm in medical device. We're talking background vocals. What does any of this stuff have to do with each other? Let not your heart be troubled because I'm going to bring it all together for you. I'll never forget standing in a room with a rep and the doctor said, so what church do you go to, so-and-so? He said, I go to the Church of Life. <laughs> I just rolled my eyes. I said, I can't believe that you just said that. Just make something up. That was too cute by half. The surgeon was not impressed. The Church of Life. Come on. So as ridiculous as the Church of Life is, don't ever say that. There is a school of life. And what I mean by that is that you can pull truths that apply to this job and apply to this life and apply to relationships from all kinds of different sources. Many of them have nothing to do on the face of it with the subject. So in other words, you don't have to go to a business book oftentimes to learn about how to conduct business. You don't need to go to a relationship book to learn about relationships or a sales book to learn about sales. I mean, you can pull these things out of the most interesting places. And the reason why I like doing it this way is because you remember it. So that's number one. That's why we used West Hightower uh, to communicate some universal truths today. And truth number one, Wes Hightower said he came to Nashville specifically to be a background singer and not a lead singer. And guess what? When we all took 
the oath of office, so to speak, as medical device reps. That's exactly what we came to town for, is to be just that. A medical device rep is a background singer. We get to sing lead once in a while. Some people hand us a mic and say, here, lead this. And that's all fine and dandy. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. But 99% of the time, we are a background vocalist, not competing with the lead vocalist, being totally secure in letting other people sing lead and providing sympathetic tones to make them sound better. I talked a little bit to Wes off the air about the whole concept of being an additive singer versus a complementary singer, and it was so profound. Uh, instead of just being another voice in the recording, being a complementary voice, and, and that's when he made the point that when you really function well in that, that engineer is going to be turning your voice up. But when you're coming across as just an additive singer, another singer, then you start to compete for that lead space and the mix engineer is going to turn you down because you're not the marquee name, so to speak, right? So let me just tie this point up real quick. Our job as a medical device rep is to be a complimentary voice to the lead vocalist and put the mic down, let other people lead. That's why they call them the lead vocalist, right? Uh, so the surgeon, the staff, everybody, when you walk into that hospital, you're singing background, so to speak, with every interaction and trying to provide a complimentary voice, not an additive voice, and not a competing voice to every conversation that you have. Number two, LSD. And no, we're not talking about, hey, I think I can fly. I'm going to jump off a building. No, not that LSD. We're talking about lead singer disease, and it can be just as destructive to a device rep's career. When does it happen? Do you do this job, you learn some things, and one day somebody hands you a microphone and says, here, I need you to lead right here, and you forget to put it down. You still carry that thing around and think that you are somehow now the lead singer, or at least you occupy that same strata as the other people that have HCP attached to their name. And all contraire, they are still the lead singers and they always will be. And you are the background vocalist who occasionally gets to sing lead. But you have to have the wisdom and the presence of mind of knowing that once that lead part has been sung, that mic gets cut off and we go right back to, in a most secure fashion, singing background and being totally comfortable and not being in the spotlight, or as the movie said, being 20 feet from stardom. By the way, what a great movie. You have to check that out. So being secure and being 20 feet from stardom all the time. I had a friend of mine who was just standing in the hallway in the OR one day, and a surgeon came out of a room. He was the first one he saw, and he said, you know what? I'm doing all my business with you now. And of course, uh, it's always in the yes, right? Just say, yes, sir. So what happened? It turns out the other rep that was in the room did not have the right things he needed for the surgery, neglected to tell the surgeon about it, and all through the case was trying to steer him away to the point of actually arguing with him, doing everything he could to try to steer the ship away from doing the procedure in such a fashion that would have led square into the implant that was not available that day. So you're thinking, okay, there's a lot of different things to take away from that story. But the big takeaway is that this guy was trying to sing lead. That surgeon was singing lead the entire time. He should have been made aware of that uh, implant that wasn't there. And the rep trying to steer the surgeon, that is uh, lead vocalist to a fault. You don't ever do that sort of thing. And it cost him dearly. He was not functioning as a background vocalist that day. Decided he wanted to sing lead, and LSD claimed a casualty. Another takeaway that I picked up from Mr. Hightower, listening for space. French composer Claude Debussy, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Miles Davis said it later, uh, music is the space between the notes. And I believe that holds true for conversations with people, is to be listening 
for that space between the notes and to be comfortable with that, not feeling like you've got to occupy every space with something to say and be quick on the response just because you're not comfortable with that. Sometimes the the silence will allow them the opportunity to complete a thought that's going to provide information that you needed. I had that happen recently where I was talking and I asked a surgeon a question and then he answered it. Something just told me to be quiet for a minute and he thought about it. I could tell he was still cogitating and then he gave me something that I did not know that I really needed to know. And I went, wow, I could have just as easily have talked right over that and he would have lost the thought and it would have been gone forever. So there is something to be said for the conversational music to be a function of that space between the notes and not be so anxious to fill it in. Another point I picked up on, a good vibe in the room comes through in the recording. I thought that was profound stuff. Uh, We've talked about it before. When you're talking to people on the phone, you smile. It comes across in the recording, so to speak. When you're in the room talking with the staff and you're happy on the inside, it projects a good vibe and it just comes across. So you come into the room all Debbie Downer and stuff. You just got to leave all that at the door because you want a good vibe. It comes through in the recording and people are recording you in a way. They're listening to what you're saying and making note of how you made them feel. That's the recording that we're talking about. So a good vibe in the room comes through in the recording. Two last things. Number one, Byron Gallimore. Byron Gallimore, this guy is a producer extraordinaire, sat down with Wes and walked him through how to do so much of this. Every one of us in this audience, including me, needs a Byron Gallimore. I think mastermind groups are great forums for that. Uh, You're going to want to stay tuned. We've got some really cool announcements coming down the road on just that for medical device reps. But We all need a Byron Gallimore in our life that can hold our hand and show us how to do a lot of this stuff. And I don't care how long you've been in this business. There's teachable moments every day, every week. I don't care if you've been doing it 10, 15, 20, 30 years. Uh, There's always something to learn from somebody else just providing feedback. We need a Byron Gallimore. A great quote that Wes Hightower put in there for us. I wrote it down. Uh, when he said, I just forgot I needed someone to remind me. When he went to the voice coach, and here's a guy who's already excellent at his craft, but he got another voice involved, and it was right in front of him the whole time. He knew it. He just forgot it. And I thought, wow, that's just so valuable, no matter how long you've been doing this. Sometimes we just need to be reminded because we forget. We leak, so to speak. And things that we knew 10 years ago, you know, time get busy. And, you know, I just forgot about this one little discipline that could be making this a whole lot better for me. And he knew that as a singer. So reaching out for help, number one, we talk about humility all the time, but number two, uh, having someone who can just bounce these things back and forth, uh, because maybe sometimes it's just that. The thing that's giving you trouble is just something you forgot, and you just need someone to remind you. Lastly, six shots of tequila. Wes said that that was his go-to in all of his performances early on, and and I think that that might have some value in maybe getting rid of some of the jitters when you're making a big sales presentation. Are you crazy? Apparently, some people out there still are because they do this kind of stuff at the office parties, and they think, oh my gosh, I'm such a better singer. I'm such a better conversationalist after six shots of tequila, and my boss is just going to love me. And then it all ends up on social media and then their careers in the tank. So don't do it. You don't sing better after six shots of tequila. Only Wes Hightower sounds just as good, if not better, after six shots of tequila because he is a trained professional singer and we clearly are not. I was asked to sing in a band once and I'm not sure that a fifth of tequila would have changed that outcome in any way. So I hope you got a lot out of that. I know I did. Uh, Do not get off the tour bus yet. We are staying in Nashville. 
and we are firing up the System 7 next week. We're firing up the robot, and we're going to talk to one of the leading surgeons in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, just about what it's like to work there and some of the things that he has going on in his life. It's going to be an exciting conversation, and you're going to want to be around for it. So in the meantime this week, let's hone our background vocal craft. Let's all be prepared when asked to sing lead. Let's have the presence of mind to put the mic down shortly thereafter. And lastly, let's all stay away from LSD. LSD.